My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading this morning comes from the first chapter of James. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of, of, of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget that what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the seventh chapter. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Judeans do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the gospel of our Lord. 
Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. A quick reminder up top here once again. If there were a theme to connect the Sundays in this season, the time after Pentecost, at least the bulk of the summer months, that theme would go something like this. How are we going to live in light of, in response to the gospel story? Because we've heard just about the whole story of Jesus throughout the church year. The church year is modeled on that story. So now we stop as we await Jesus' return and we reflect on what does that story mean for us today. Yes, this season will soon wrap up with the anticipation of Christ's return, and that's really where the story ends, but we're not quite there yet. So as we've seen a fair bit lately, today we get a double dose of what are Christians to do, what ought we do. So as is our responsibility this morning, we'll figure on the context, we'll compare then to now, and we'll see what these uh, lessons, these calls, these commands for Christians, uh, what they might mean for us today. And we're going to go in chronological order and start with Jesus this time. As you well know, the Pharisees are often, but not always, antagonists in the Gospels. They were leaders of a rising movement that would arguably someday soon replace the temple-oriented Judaism of Jesus' day. Make it more about how am I going to relate to God wherever I am in the world, how am I going to live my life, rather than how do I engage with the temple, because soon the temple will be gone, unfortunately. Now, people often make the mistake of thinking the Pharisees argue for the nominal view, the majority view of Jewish people, like Jewish people in general, then or today, but neither are true. That's simply not the case. Not only would other Jewish people have disagreed, Jesus is Jewish, he disagrees, but it's well within us Christians to have a Pharisaical mindset. The, the, the downside of the Pharisees we meet in this text and throughout the Gospels. Again, there's some exceptions, but uh, that, that pharisaical mindset's about a rigorous devotion to, to rules, and Christians sometimes do that too, right? But the Jewish people had inherited a whole host of rules from the law of Moses, like hundreds of them, and they had developed ways of implementing them, following some rules in different ways. And for some, particularly these antagonists in the Gospel, some began to regard devotion for God and commitment to those traditions, those rules, as one and the same. Now, let's pivot a little bit and consider something outside of Jewish law, but ethics in general. When ethicists consider what's good or bad, or permissible or not, what's allowed or not, they often weigh two competing ideas. What were your intentions? What did you mean to have happen? Versus the consequences what actually happened. Arguably, the Pharisees are strong in the consequence camp. You just follow the rule, you do the deeds as they were prescribed, so hopefully you get the prescribed outcome. But Jesus is more in the intentions camp and repeatedly calls those who will listen to consider, where was your heart really at? His disciples in this story, they go out in the field, they begin to pick straight from the plant and eat right away, right? And this ruffles feathers. Because the rules say you're supposed to wash your hands. Not just your hands, but other things as well, Mark notes. Uh-oh, did Jesus just suggest we're not supposed to wash our hands anymore? That's quite the uh, curiosity. <laughs> we know, looking back, that the rules around cleanliness and defilement would include washing all this stuff and a whole host of other ideas because it turns out to do otherwise 
would increase the likelihood of disease. Now, they didn't know why that was. Why did these cleanliness rules keep you physically healthier? But they either figured it out over time or God flat revealed it to them. And in either case, the rule was set. By the way, since this is such a bizarre way to read Jesus, as if he said, you shouldn't wash your hands in the middle of a pandemic, and undoubtedly some preachers are going to preach it that way today, this isn't the only health-oriented rule by a long stretch. In Leviticus 13, this is when it comes to skin disease, it says anyone declared unclean by the priest, who was the one who would you know, do such declaring, anyone who's been declared unclean is supposed to both keep their distance and keep the lower half of their face covered. They were also to yell out unclean so others would keep their distance too. Now, again, they couldn't have told you why that was helpful, but it was encoded in God's law, one way or the other, about 3,000 years ago. So back to Jesus then. Why do his disciples disregard this rule about hand washing, and why will I insist that Jesus isn't telling us to give up washing our hands? This is, a, this is based on the context in which this event takes place. Now, he clarifies a, a bigger teaching, a more important teaching, is what, what really defiles someone as in makes them impure or unfit to come before the presence of God is what's within. Some of the rules, he implies, are actually human tradition, and they should not be equated with divine rules. Instead, what's most important is minding those vile things that come from within. So we'd be unwise to unpack this as Jesus just says, oh, don't worry about washing don't worry about cleanliness anymore. Instead, we need a bigger picture to understand this sort of teaching. How does it fit in with other uh, disagreements like this that Jesus had? Well, the through line, whenever Jesus pushes back against the tradition, is twofold. There's two things we find throughout. One is worry more about your intentions. Remember, that's the camp Jesus is more strongly in. Is following this rule about glorifying yourself so others will think you're so great? Or is it about serving others? Is following this rule an attempt to manipulate God? Right? If I just do this, maybe God will do that. Or is it about submitting to God, drawing closer to God? Is this rule about your own power or prestige, or does it actually glorify God? In other words, the call from Jesus again and again throughout is introspection. That's part of repentance. Don't worry about the speck in others' eyes. Worry about the plank in your own. Don't cast stones if you yourself are not sinless. Don't judge for fear that you too will be judged. It comes up again and again, some of Jesus's most famous quotations. When it comes to morality, what's acceptable before God, worry about yourself first and foremost, and foremost of us, uh, most of the time, that means pretty much only worry about ourselves. Now, we're still called to worry about others in the sense that, right, that we, in terms of love and service, but as far as judgments go, judgments are meant to point inward. Second through line then, uh, through whenever Jesus has this pushback, is another intention, but this time it's the intention of the law. What's its purpose? Why do any of these laws exist at all? What did God mean for the Jewish people when these rules were given? Well, they made the Jewish people stand out in a crowd full of various people with various religions and so on. Having their God stand out as unique got people's attention, and that's important. They called people to a more equitable and just society than anyone had experienced before that in history. 
So they insisted people practice things like mercy. They seek reconciliation in an era in which you could be executed for a minor crime. Those are the kind of things the law did for the people of Moses. So Jesus picks up that torch, carries it further, and calls us to do the same. How can we be more merciful in light of how things are today? Remember, he says the two laws that underpin all the rest of them, the two big ones, are to love God and to love neighbor, which he explains includes even our enemies. If a law implemented and practiced a certain way fails to love God and or neighbor, then it's time to reassess. These Pharisees saw the disciples eating, and they didn't think to themselves, hey, this is great. These people are being fed. This movement to preach, teach, and draw people closer to God can keep on moving, draw more people to God, because they don't have to stop to head into town to complete the rituals to find food. Instead of getting excited like that, they saw the rule as rigorous and impersonal, as if it applies in all contexts exactly the same, as if God's law and by implication, God would be so cruel as to force the disciples to choose between following Christ as they were supposed to do and eating, like they were supposed to go hungry, maybe even starve to do what God asked them to do. These Pharisees in this story missed the point of the law and its intentions, so Jesus corrects them. Their judgmentalness, slanders right there in the list, and so on, those are bigger concerns. So, what about those rules that are more specific to us Christians? Let's fast forward to James then. <laughs> but you know, in our tradition, James has had it a little rough in the Lutheran tradition. Luther, especially early on, was not a fan. He was upset that it had so little to do with Jesus beyond invoking his name early on. He also saw the debate between Paul and James as something that should have been put to rest, not made permanent in Scripture, because... Yeah, that is kind of a thing. St. James and St. Paul did not agree on everything. Paul writes about this explicitly in Galatians and where Peter fits in. But we can also see it by comparing the epistle of James to the epistle of Romans. Paul says we're justified by faith alone and not works. James says we are justified by faith and works, not faith alone. Now, as odd as this is going to sound, James and Paul aren't actually contradicting each other. They're just using very similar language to talk about two different things. It's like in academic circles. You have to define what it is you mean by each technical word you're going to use. Luther eventually acknowledged that, that they weren't actually contradicting each other. However, he was afraid that if the average layperson were to read James on their own time, they could come to a conclusion that does, in fact, contradict Paul. Specifically, remember Romans Luther called that the purest gospel, and Romans presents the gospel as salvation is by grace, through faith, on account of Christ, not by works. That's the purest gospel. He didn't want people getting tricked into thinking, you must do this or that or any particular thing in order to be saved, like buy this indulgence or go to that church. By the way, since we're having a baptism this morning, it's worth noting that baptism is Christ's work. So its effect on our salvation is not our own doing. It is not our work. We are merely giving the outward public communal sign of what Christ has done for the baptized. But on the text, here's James telling us we have a whole lot we have to do. If we aren't careful, it might sound like James is siding with those pharisaical sort rather than Jesus. But that's not quite what's happening, and that's for two reasons. 
One is the entirety of James, if we read it correctly, fits quite well with Jesus' through lines. James is telling us, worry about your intentions, your, your own intentions, the intentions of the law, and worry about yourself. James isn't suggesting we legalize, that we impose the rules of his church on the rest of the world or anyone else. He's advising them on how you might do that introspection that Jesus calls you to do. What can I do better? He echoes Jesus' sentiment elsewhere that the law is really about loving our neighbor. That's its purpose. But we get a parallel sentiment already right here today. Pure religion in the eyes of God our Father is this, that we look after widows and orphans in their distress. If our religion doesn't call us, insist upon us, drive us with every fiber of our being to look after those who are most vulnerable in our society, it was widows and orphans in his, if we're not called to look after those most vulnerable in our society, community, congregations, world, then what good is it to anyone? How does it call us to love neighbor if it doesn't call us to love those who need it the most? If it doesn't drive us to love neighbor, then how can we say it's about loving God? It's simply not enough that our religion make us feel better about ourselves. That would be to fashion an idol in our own image and worship it instead. James insists his church not fall into that trap. This has to be about taking care of other people too. Don't say to ourselves, I have my beliefs and that is enough. I'm good with God, so we're good to go. Instead, act on the things Christ has called us to do. Let the belief be a motivator to act rather than be complicit. So that's the call today. That hasn't changed too much. The details may have changed along the way, but introspection, once again, consider your own self, your own intentions. Do you seek to serve and protect those who are most vulnerable at the greatest risk of danger? Or do you seek your own vanity and comfort? Reassess, readjust, and reorient as needed. That's what repentance means. Because through Christ, God has called us in a very particular direction. And it's not inward. It's only ever and always outward. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.